Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 and extending to verse 20. Well, actually, we'll go through, uh, we'll go through the end of the chapter. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which is, uh, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Answers in Genesis has a fairly famous uh, illustration that they put out from time to time. It's an illustration of two castles, and they are warring with cannons, and they're about six feet apart. But the illustration looks like this, and it makes some significant points. Over here, you have the good guys, you have us. We are the Christians, and we have an enemy that is attacking us. And if you'll notice, uh, we're not doing terribly well. We have one guy shooting at the balloons up here, which are symptoms and not causes. You have one guy over here shooting in the wrong direction, and so he's probably that guy who's spending all of his energy pushing for recycling or something to that effect. But most significantly... You have this guy here shooting his own castle. The imagery uh, makes a number of points, but the one most significant for us is it is foolish in a time of war to shoot your own people. It's just counterproductive. And of course they have a second image that shows what things ought to look like. We ought to be pulling together. We ought to be shooting at the bad guys. We ought to be winning the war. How did we in Ephesians get to where we are now? 
Well, the answer is, as we have moved through the epistle, we have moved through four large sections, and there has definitely been a pattern and a plan that the Holy Spirit has been using through Paul to bring us to this passage. The first section is from chapter 1, verse 3, and going to verse 10 of chapter 2, where Paul begins by saying, we have received all the spiritual blessings that God has to give in Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. God has given us everything that could possibly be be needed or wanted. He has blessed us with every, every spiritual gift. And this is both for the Jew and it is for the Gentile. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, whether he is Jew or Gentile, God has given him all these blessings. And this started before the foundation of the earth. It started before time even began. God selected all of us. God brought all of us from the dead back to life. All of this started with God and nothing that we had done. And Paul subtly, as I said, emphasizes in a few places in this section, this is true whether you are a Jew or you're a Gentile. If you're a believer in Jesus, God predestined you from the foundation of the world to be brought to life. You have all received grace if you're in Christ. There's no difference. And then... In the second major section, which goes from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3 and verse 21, uh, Paul goes into very specific detail that in Jesus Christ, God has brought Gentiles into the covenants, into the, uh, the, the nation, into the people of God. God has always had a nation and covenants and people. And he has been gracious to them throughout history. But now in Jesus Christ, he has brought all the believing Gentiles into all of that. So that in times past, the kingdom of Jesus Christ was really very largely limited to the Jewish nation. Now, Gentiles have been melded into the kingdom of Christ, into the covenants of Christ, They are now under his banner. God has taken Gentile and Jew and made them one in Jesus Christ. And then in the third section, the apostle goes at great lengths to teach us what a life worthy of this calling would be. And in his own words, he starts like this in chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Since there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So that's how Paul begins the third section. And if you noticed, he keeps emphasizing one. There is one God, one people, one spirit. 
God is at work in all of you. The life worthy of the calling you have received is for you all, Jew or Gentile in Jesus Christ. There is one worthy life, and it is given to you from God. And this section goes from verse 1 of chapter 4 to verse 521. And then from verse 522 through 69, we have our fourth section where Paul emphasizes what a Christian family should be like. And here he makes no distinction of culture. He doesn't say now a, um, a Roman Christian family will look this way, a Greek Christian family will look that way, a Jewish Christian family this other way. Rather, he emphasizes, if you are in Jesus Christ, this is what the family should look like. So again, it is subtle, but Paul is emphasizing the oneness of the body of Jesus Christ. God began at the beginning of time by choosing who would belong to Christ. He has brought them from death to life, whether they be Jew or Gentile, There's no difference. There is one life worthy of the calling you have received, and that one life is for all of you, and it's in the oneness of Christ. And your families have a pattern from God, and it's not cultural. It's not red people have this pattern, and black people have this pattern, yellow people have this pattern, and white people have this pattern. There is one pattern for the Christian family given by God, We are all together one. And that brings us to our section for today. Why all the emphasis on unity? Well, it's because there's a battle going on, and you are right smack dab in the middle of it, and people are shooting cannons at you this very moment, And there is nowhere to hide from it. There is a spiritual war happening. It is a spiritual war. In verse 10 and 11 of our primary passage, Paul emphasizes the spiritual nature of it. He begins by calling those who he is writing to, my brethren, which is again a subtle statement of unity because the church in Ephesus is almost completely Gentile. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, We're at war and the devil is the enemy and it's happening right now and you are a soldier And you need to do what needs to be done to stand. That makes the issue of unity imperative. Like the castle, which was shooting in the wrong direction, was shooting at mere symptoms and not causes, or worse, was shooting itself, so the Christian church often is. Often in our disunity, We are going off in three or four different directions at once because we have superiority complex to our fellow believers in other situations. The forces of darkness are not so divided. 
the forces of darkness are very unified. They have a vision for what they want. They have a vision for what they would like to make the world like. And they're not fighting each other. They are totally, totally together. And Paul has brought us to this moment to realize you got to be as together as they are. Because the war is happening. It is a spiritual war with the devil. But having said that, and the term spiritual does come up in our passage, when you get further down to uh, verse 12, Paul uses the term spiritual. It's against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. When we use the term spiritual, we are culturally programmed to think that that is in contrast to physical. You have the spiritual world and you have the physical world. And if this is a spiritual war, then it must be happening all in here and here. The the devil and the hosts of hell, they are attacking you in mind and in heart. And that is where the battle will be fought. It has nothing to do with the physical world. It is all ethereal, all mental, all emotional, and all very private. It is all very personal. This war is something that happens on the intellectual plane. That is not how the scriptures use the term spiritual. Allow me to to demonstrate. If you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have a discussion of the resurrection. And our Lord's resurrection is at the forefront. Jesus has risen from the dead. And working out of Christ's resurrection, the apostle begins to talk about our resurrection. And to to take kind of a survey of the chapter, looking at verse 20, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, in saying that, Paul says, uh, Christ is the first of many. He is the first fruits. He is the best. But he is part of the harvest. His resurrection shows that the rest of the resurrection will happen, and we will be like him because we will be fruits of the harvest. He is the first fruits. And Paul hammers this point home further down in verse 42 to 49, where we read this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And is the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. 
What was the body of Jesus Christ like after the resurrection? What did the Gospels display about him? He obviously had great powers that we didn't really see him demonstrate before resurrection. He could be in a locked room if he wanted to be there. He could be known by people or not be known by them at his will. But having said that, the Gospels show him to have a physical body. Touch my wounds and see. He is able to eat fish, and he actually uh, puts out a, uh, a plate of fish, effectively, while the, 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 the fishermen are fishing. He roasts fish, and he eats with people. They are able to hear him talk. They, he takes up space. His body is called a spiritual body, and we are said to be resurrected like his body. It's spiritual as opposed to natural, or as some translations say, carnal. Spiritual and physical are not contrasted in Scripture. What is contrasted is spiritual and carnality. When our first father and mother were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, they were told they would die when this happened, and they did. There was a spiritual death that they died, and they were dead. But nevertheless, they were physically still around, living in the world, doing worldly things, but death had happened. What had happened is they had become carnal. They had become what we now call natural. They had entered into the estate of being at enmity with God, but it was not spiritual versus physical. It was spiritual versus carnal. Now, why am I belaboring this? Well, the answer is that um, the devils, the demons, in this spiritual war that we are currently in, who are spiritual beings and are at war with your spiritual estate, these spiritual beings oftentimes use person, places, and things to work their warfare. The spiritual war is as much about nouns as it is about notions. The devils are at work in the world, but they work through people. They work through circumstances. They work through things that happen in this world, and that is very much a part of the spiritual war. Now, a number of people, a number of, of very deep-thinking Christians throughout the centuries have emphasized that the battle between good and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart, and they're not wrong. The devils and the demons do attack you on the level of temptation. They do attack you internally, and that is certainly a part of the spiritual war. But they also use other people that they are in control of to harm you as well. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to his beloved son Timothy, training him in ministry. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
and beginning at verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, not just churchmen, but be gentle to everyone, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Why is he commended to be so kind to everyone, even those who are you know, against the faith and, and attacking? Well, it's so if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So Paul says, there are a lot of people out there who are not repentant. God has not granted it to them yet. They don't know the truth. They are blinded. They are captured by the devil to do his will. They are in opposition to the kingdom of Christ because they're in the hands of devils. Remember that, Timothy. They are not your enemy. They are the weapons of the enemy. But they are being used by the enemy. The kingdoms of darkness, the the principalities and powers, will use people, places, and things to wage their spiritual war on you. And the spiritual war is not just in here. It is very much something that happens 24-7 everywhere you as a person touch. You touch the physical world, the devils will attack you there. You touch the mental world, the devils will attack you there. Wherever you are, there the power of the devil will be to assault you. The spiritual war is contrasted with carnal warfare, not physical. In the first chapter of Daniel, you have a very famous account of one of the earliest events happening in Daniel's life. He has been taken as a captive to Babylon and... He is put in a very difficult situation. God's law has said you should eat only clean food, and the Babylonians who are his captors demand that he break the law. Daniel was experiencing the spiritual war at that time, and he was being confronted by men who probably didn't realize exactly what they were doing. They didn't realize they were uh, bringing Daniel into to, to difficulty, but it was very much a part of the spiritual war. And Daniel fought it spiritually, if you know that chapter. In the book of Acts, in chapter 13, Paul is involved in the spiritual war when we read this account of him. Chapter 13 and verse 6 through 12. Now when they had gone through the island to to, uh, Paphos, uh, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw all that had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul was in the spiritual battle on, at Pathos. But there was a man who opposed the truth, and Paul didn't say, now, what happens out in the physical world, that's not really that important. What, what really matters is internally. No, Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, looked at a man who was doing evil and said, you are a son of the devil. God is going to best you. And a physical man went physically blind because the Apostle Paul had physically confronted him. The spiritual battle is not contrasted with the physical. It is contrasted with the carnal. Or consider also uh, Joseph. We have been studying Joseph's life in uh, the midweek Bible study, and in Psalm 105, the psalmist gives a, a portion of the psalm to his life, and in verse 16 to 19, we read this. Moreover, he, that is God, called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Now is that a spiritual conflict or a physical one? Joseph is being tested. He is being tempted because God has given him prophecies that look like they're not happening. And so the spiritual war is happening here, and it's happening here, but it's also happening because in God's providence, in the pit, in the bedroom, and in the prison, he has faced physical circumstances, and in the physical world, dealing with people, he has suffered, and it looks like God's providence is not coming to pass. So if we look at the saints of God throughout the Bible, they are involved in the spiritual war, but it is in the physical world, in the world we live in day in and day out. Religion is not simply private or internal, and spirituality is not just in your head. But having said that, Paul goes into the weapons which, which we will fight this war. And the weapons that we are to use are not the weapons that the world uses to fight its wars. And this is only appropriate because 
God had made a promise to us long before Ephesians had been written that there would come a day when warfare with physical sword, warfare with physical armor would come to an end. In the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, we read, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Now the Hebrew word there for warfare is very much a word for physical warfare. It's used for the kind of warfare that happens when a king drives a slave army to war. And so the prophet is saying, comfort my people, tell them this kind of war will not happen again. This warfare is over. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, when does she receive double for her sins? It is when Jesus Christ walks on earth, when he goes to the cross, when he raises from the dead. And just to emphasize that, the prophet goes on and we hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So who is this prophecy about? Well, the New Testament is very clear who it's about. It's about John the Baptist announcing that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. He is going to pay double for all our sins. This is when that kind of warfare will be abolished, and that's where we stand. You don't have First Methodist Church raising an army to go attack the local mosque because that kind of warfare is finished. This kind of warfare that Paul talks about is no less a real war, though. It is absolutely a struggle between good and evil. It definitely happens in the real world. And this kind of war is much more important than that kind of war. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that the city of Nineveh was politically very significant. It was the first international empire in, in the modern era. It nearly conquered the whole world. Its armies were renowned for their ability and for their cruelty. And Nineveh, for about 200 years, was the greatest power on earth. But let About 120 years go by after Nineveh falls. And Alexander the Great is marching on his way to India. And he is told where you're about to camp is in the region of ancient Nineveh. And Alexander the Great scoffs. Because everyone knows Nineveh is just a myth. Nineveh never existed Nineveh was a story to frighten children. And so Alexander camped 
600 yards from the ruins of Nineveh, and he didn't believe it existed. And in fact, that went all the way down to the modern era until the the late 1800s, where liberals scoffed at the Bible and said, Nineveh was a made-up country, it it never really existed, and then archaeologists dug it out of the soil of Syria, and now you can get a degree in Assyriology in, in Ninevite. But the empire that had the whole world in its grasp by carnal warfare disappeared to the point where no one believed it existed. Let us contrast that with the kingdom that we are part of. In the book of Daniel, we read in chapter 2 and verse 44, uh, this reference to the kingdom of Christ. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdoms of this world use carnal warfare to fight their carnal wars. And they receive a carnal reward, which is for a brief amount of time, they shine in the history of man, and then they disappear back into the sludge, and it is as if they never existed. But the Christian is called to a spiritual warfare for a spiritual king, for a king who has been promised his kingdom will never disappear. If you're going to fight for that kingdom, you need very different kind of weapons. And the Apostle Paul assures us that we, in fact, have those different kind of weapons. When he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul is not talking about some mental, philosophical warfare. He is talking about real weapons that have come from God. He is talking about a real war that will change things in the world. He is talking about a kingdom that will be in the real world and will manifest itself in real ways. But it's a spiritual kingdom. It is spiritual weapons. It is not the machine gun. It is not the bazooka. It is not the tank. It is some body of things that are very different. And in our primary text today in Ephesians, Paul goes through what those weapons really are. The first one is truth. Gird yourselves with truth. Let it be the belt that holds everything together. The first thing you will learn if you go to college is that in the uh, secular world, 
there is no such thing as truth. The absolute truth absolutely doesn't exist. That will absolutely be taught to you and is an absolute philosophical contradiction, but there you have it. The world doesn't believe in any absolute truth. It is totally foreign to the very concept, but the first gear that the apostle puts before us is you have the truth. God has given it to you. It is fighting gear that you might win the spiritual war. Secondly, there is righteousness. Righteousness is being right with God. It is being what God designed you to be. It is being in that place which God designed you to occupy so that you might do those good deeds which God, before the foundation of the earth, gave to you. The world does not believe in righteousness. Righteousness conveys an idea that there is an absolute good and an absolute evil. But you know such things are true. The Lord God has revealed to you that he has made you for a purpose. He has given you good deeds to walk in. He has given you to relate to him in a very specific way. This is a weapon of defense. This is gear for the war, and it is yours to use. Third, there is, quote, preparation of the gospel of peace. The image here is a footwear that is designed to let you stand. Uh, if, you, if you've ever engaged in melee combat, you will realize one of the biggest problems you will have is being able to stay on your feet. People will push you around and you will slide around. They may knock you over. You need something that will undergird you and be a foundation for you and let you dig into the earth. Well, the apostle points to the spiritual war gear of being prepared in the gospel of peace. That will be a foundation for you to stand on. And it will also be an offensive weapon. The Apostle Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter, where in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 3 we read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Our great king sends forth his arrows and they pierce the heart of his enemies. But our great king slays his enemies to bring them to life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a weapon against the world, against the kingdoms of darkness. It is a weapon against the devils and all their principalities. And it has a power that no carnal weapon could ever wield. Being prepared in the gospel of peace, the good news that brings you into peace with God and can bring others into peace with God, this is a primary weapon. This is how you win the war. 
If you merely kill the bodies of your enemies, I guarantee you more enemies will come. You cut down a man and his three children will rise up to get you. But if you bring them by God's grace and through his power into the kingdom of God, you have won four brothers and the kingdom has grown. And this is the real weapon. Next is salvation. This is a protective device for the war. The worldling can't fight this spiritual battle for Christ because he didn't have any of this stuff. The worldling is not a saved person. But you are in the estate of salvation. Jesus Christ has poured out his blood for you. You are saved. You are saved to the uttermost. You are in his protective care. This is a weapon in your hand to fight the spiritual war. Next is the word of God. It is the sword. Only a foolish warrior would go into battle without his primary weapon, the sword being the primary weapon. For the Christian, the sword is the word. We are not given a sword of iron. We are not given a spear of wood and bone. We are given the word of God, and the word of God is a weapon in our hands to change the world. Again, put out of your mind any idea that the spiritual warfare is only here and here. If you look at the world and how things have happened, where has the great good things that history can boast, where have they grown up? Where have they been developed? They have been developed where godly men under the control of their king have wielded the word of God and the word of God has become the foundation for what, if you can find something good in this world, has been built. And then, lastly, if we can use such language, we have prayer. Many commentators have looked at this passage and said, It copies the Roman legionnaire. Uh, All his gear is listed here, uh, except for missile weapons. Where where are the missile weapons? Well, they, they overlooked it. Prayer is launched towards heaven, and heaven takes it and fills it with incense, puts it on the altar of God, and then tosses it with power back to the earth. Prayer is a weapon in the hand of the Christian that the world mocks, the world cannot understand, and yet the world longs for, because we're told 89% of people pray, even atheists. But prayer has been given to you, the the, the veil between uh, the holy place and the most holy place has been ripped open. You can walk in there anytime you like and make petition of God What kind of weapon could even compare to that? These are weapons for a kingdom that will expand, never be destroyed, and will ultimately be the kingdom that fills all creation. These weapons need uh, further elaboration. And they will receive it in coming Lord's Days. 
But for now, uh, rejoice, Christian. The, the war is at hand, and the war has always been here. Sometimes when in prosperity, we lose sight of the fact the missiles are flying, but they fly in prosperity as much as they do in affliction. The war is here, but the weapons are yours, and the kingdom will never be destroyed, and your king will rule. Rejoice and be glad.